everybody. Welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 290 this evening. And uh, it was only in real time two weeks ago that we had our last session, but it feels, uh, feels longer to me than that, as I have been many, many thousands of miles since then. Um, I just got back from Osmoot, which was, as always, delightful. Such a wonderful community down there in Osmoot. Good to see some of you here this evening. There's Dizia, Saranos, uh, before. Um, really great uh, to spend time with you folks, as, as it always is. Um, but yes, I've, uh, I've been home for fewer hours than uh, it took me to travel home <laughs> this past time. <laughs> so I'm still a little bit out of it, just a little bit. Um, uh, and no, I, I fortunately, JJ, my home was not, in fact, up for auction uh, when I returned. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that was um, that was uh, anyway a piece of uh, a piece of <laughs> a piece of good news about it. Um, but uh, yes, our time at uh, uh, time in Sydney was marvelous. Um, we had a we had a terrific moot, including um, I don't know if some of you uh, caught a little intro uh, stream on Lotro. Some of the people at the moot uh, were curious about Lotro, having never played it before. So I did a little bit of an introduction to uh, how it worked and some of the uh, kind of adaptation principles of it. And that was a lot of fun. Um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah, we did. Uh, we did a bunch of things. I had a, gave a talk on Estelle, heard a bunch of wonderful papers, um, did a uh, did a, uh, a a really fun exercise, which I've always wanted to do. It was really really fun. Um, what I did was um, I set up a, a matrix by which I could randomly, by dice roll, um, choose a completely random paragraph in the Lord of the Rings for discussion. So I wanted to have like a close reading discussion, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to uh, know in advance what it was going to be. Um, so we rolled, so I rolled to, you know, decide like which book is it going to be in, which chapter is it going to be in, and then which paragraph of that chapter. Um, and um, it was, uh, it was, it was pretty cool. And then I did a comparison um, of like, I, I rolled for a random passage in like Tolkien's entire corpus. So I had a list of like, you know, eight, of his works and rolled like which book is it going to be in like which which work is it going to be in and then which uh, you know which chapter and everything like that so we ended up for that one we ended up doing a compare so oh by the way the chapter that i rolled uh in the lord of the rings for the random lord of the rings discussion the chapter was um uh it was the the paragraph was from the one where, where elrond decrees that the company of the ring shall be nine um, and the nine walkers uh, shall be set against the nine riders who are evil. That was the that was the chapter, the paragraph rather we got for our first discussion, and then um, the the second. So the second one again, I I, I did like a, to a random from any of Tolkien's works, um, but I, I rolled twice on that chart so that we chose two random passages to compare, and um, the uh, <laughs> the the past week. So one we got a random snippet. Of conversation between Eowyn and the master of the Houses of Healing. It was one of the masters of Houses of Healing um, when he was uh, uh, trying to tell Eowyn that he really didn't want to disturb Faramir, who was a, it, it was the one where he informs her that Faramir, the master of the city, uh, is uh, is a patient. You know, is is uh, is in that house as well. Um, so we got that paragraph, and then I rolled a second. Uh, 
and the second one, the second one was a Hobbit one. So I got a random Hobbit paragraph. And you're never going to believe this. Like, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't rolled it myself. But rolling the Hobbit randomly and then rolling 1 to 19, which random chapter of the Hobbit I was going to do, rolled chapter 18, rolled a random paragraph and got Thorin's deathbed speech. Like, just rolling dice, I happened to roll... Thorin's deathbed speech to Bilbo. It was incredible. Um, so we we're doing a comparison of that paragraph of dialogue between Eowyn and the Master of the House of Healing and uh, Thorin's deathbed speech. <laughs> yeah, Matt, exactly. I was like, the dice have spoken, yes. And it was so cool because we were, um, you know, we were noticing, because, I mean, it was it was really conspicuous, having just discussed Eowyn and the Houses of Healing and her whole situation there and how she attempted uh, to die gloriously in battle but failed. We then immediately go to the deathbed of Thorin, who has just succeeded in living her dream and dying gloriously, uh, well, as a result of wounds he received, glorious in battle um anyway it was a fascinating comparison and fully justified my hypothesis <laughs> that uh this uh that this approach um will like lead to really fascinating connections that you didn't expect before um and uh yeah i can totally do this at myth Moot trifle i was I, I was uh i was kind of um i was kind of thinking about that yeah jj just quoted the uh, the passage there. So the list that I have, the list of paragraphs by chapter um, was uh, provided to me by James Tauber from the Digital Tolkien Project. And the way he has the paragraph number, and then he has three words, the first three words of the paragraph. And so, so I got, I rolled, I rolled, I think, what is it? I think it's 36. I rolled the, I rolled the 36. No, no, it wasn't 36. That was a different one. Anyway, so I rolled the, I rolled the paragraph and I looked at it and just said, no, said Thorin. And I'm like, what? No, that's not the one. I can't be. I can't have rolled that one, did I? Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, Matt, I actually originally thought of this idea as a kind of academic party game. Actually, um, I, I, I thought of this back in grad school as a thing that could be that could be done. And in fact, Matt, you could do a variant, um, which is you could do you could roll simultaneously on two tables one of which contains a series of thesis statements and another of which contains a series of literary works right and then like whatever combination you get you like make an argument to support that thesis from that work um that's that was like my original idea back in graduate school <laughs> um but uh, <laughs> anyway um so um uh so yeah, so um, yeah, actually, Bob James um, James offered to to make a like a site that would automatically generate random paragraphs, but like then I wouldn't have the fun of, of rolling dice. So uh, uh, <laughs> anyway, um, anyway, so it was it was it was kind of dramatic uh, the way it, the way it unfolded. Um, after that, we as I said, like my, so my my hypothesis had always been you'd like choose two random paragraphs and talk about like discovery is so much more fun than like you know planning an argument or something like that. So. Um, uh, so just kind of looking at these two paragraphs and putting them next to each other was really, was really, really fun. Um, but, um, uh, so the, um, uh, <laughs> the third exercise I did was I rolled a second random Tolkien paragraph from like on my table of like all of Tolkien's works. And then I rolled on a table of random other works, uh, that we had talked about in the Mythgard Academy. And that I would be prepared to like to you know talk about some random 
arbitrary paragraph on. And um, so I ended up doing, <laughs> that was a hilarious comparison because <laughs> we got, we got, um, I got a, a paragraph from Leaf by Niggle. Um, so it was the one where like uh, uh, Niggle is complaining about not getting a public pension and how he complained about people coming to visit him for tea in the spring and distracting him from working on his painting. So I got that paragraph and then and then I rolled Dune <laughs> and, and then I ended up with the paragraph describing um, describing Fade Rautha just after he killed uh, the gladiator in the slave pits. <laughs> it was it was awesome. <laughs> so then, and then I had like sixty seconds because running out of time. I had like sixty seconds to like draw a conclusion <laughs> based on a comparison and contrast of those two passages, and it was uh, it was cool. In the end, it was about um, uh, it was a, a, about the 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 fascinating difference in the question of managing societal expectations uh, between Fade Rautha as heir of Baron Harkonnen and of Niggle and his balancing of his artistic vision, uh, and how Niggle's artistic vision, which was in conflict uh, with the societal pressure on him, uh, though different from Fade Rautha's vision uh, for his own political career. Um, uh, anyway, that was kind of the direction I ended up going. Yes, though, though, though different. Much more exactly, I was arguing that if you if you paid careful attention, you could detect differences uh, in uh, in those two visions. Um, but uh, anyway, it was um, um, it was um, it was fun. This was this was this was a, this was a phenomenally successful experiment uh, that I performed on the attendees of Osmoot, and I thought it was I thought it was great fun. Yeah, Fade Ralpha is that. Yeah, he's the nephew of uh, the Baron Harkonnen, his 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 intended heir, uh, the one who was played by Sting in the old nineteen eighties film. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, so anyway, that was just a small glimpse of. Um, the uh, some of the fun that we had um, uh, in um, um, in uh, at at Myth Moon. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Exactly, Maureen. Yeah, Sting wearing the tinfoil underwear. That, yeah, that that kind of scarred me a little bit back in the eighties. I remember that too. Um, yeah. Yeah. So. Um, okay. All right. Anyway, let's um. <laughs> Let's let's uh, let's go back. Oh come on now, the nineteen eighty four Dune movie is actually really interesting. I mean, it's it's there there are odd choices that are made. It has certain limitations, but it you know it features Sting wearing tinfoil underwear. Um, and actually, I found it really interesting when I was when I, I rewatched it again recently, and it was. It was more interesting than I remembered. Anyway, yeah, it has Patrick Stewart in it. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Patrick Stewart plays Gurney Halleck. Um, yeah. Anyhow. Okay. Um, anyway, let, let us move forward this evening um, and uh, move on back into our passage. Oh, okay, first of all, before we do, um, one really quick announcement. Um, the next moot is coming up soon. That will be in two weeks. Um, two weeks from this weekend, uh, down in Orlando, Florida. So it's time for Sunshine Moot again. Sunshine Moot is now one of our uh, one of our longest running moots. Actually, uh, Sunshine, Sunshine Moot is, is, has become a delightful annual tradition um, uh, down in uh, down in or in uh, well 
near Orlando, Florida, not in Orlando itself, but nearby. Um, and uh, we'll be we'll be delighted to see folks down there <clears throat> for Sunshine Mood again. And we can, um, uh, uh, and of course you can attend remotely as well as you can with all of our moods. So uh, go to uh, blackberry.signumuniversity.org and you can register for Sunshine Moot or any of our other moots that are coming up. Um, all right. Um, let us go back to our text now. So you will recall that we had just been locating, um, we had just been locating the, um, the door, right? We had talked about finding the door and we were, <laughs> we got distracted by textual variants, uh, and all of, uh, and all of this sort of thing, right? Um, so let's hang on at the risk. I'm just going to, let's, Remembering where we were, because again, it feels to me like a long time. Uh, so much wonder has befallen me since our last class. Um, okay, let's start with the sentence which distracted us last time. Dwarf doors are not made to be seen when shut, said Gimli. They are invisible, and their own masters cannot find them or open them if their secret is forgotten. But this door was not made to be a secret known only to dwarves, said Gandalf, coming suddenly to life and turning round. Unless things are altogether changed, eyes that know what to look for may discover the signs. He walked forward to the wall. Right between the shadow of the trees there was a smooth space, and over this he passed his hands to and fro, muttering words beneath his breath. Then he stepped back. Okay, hang on, I gotta make a shift here. Okay, gotcha. Um... Uh, all right. Then he stepped back. So that's where we got. Let's go back now. All right. Look, he said. Can you see anything now? The moon now shone upon the gray face of the rock, but they could see nothing else for a while. Then slowly on the surface, where the wizard's hands had passed, faint lines appeared, like slender veins of silver running in the stone. At first they were no more than pale gossamer threads, so fine that they only twinkled fitly, fitfully where the moon caught them. But steadily they grew broader and clearer, until their design could be guessed. At the top, as high as Gandalf could reach, was an arch of interlacing letters in an elvish character. Below, though the threads were in places blurred or broken, the outline could be seen of an anvil and a hammer, surmounted by a crown with seven stars. Beneath these again were two trees, each bearing crescent moons. More clearly than all else, there shone forth in the middle of the door a single star with many rays. Okay. <clears throat> all right. So the first thing that I want to uh, draw attention to with this um, is to continue the conversation that we were having last time about the Hobbit connections, right? What's going on with the uh, with the Hobbit connections here? We had our passage where we were, you know, having the parallel to the 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 thrush knocking, right? The standing on the doorstep. Now they're still standing on the doorstep, but now that's been um, coincided, right? Uh, it's been sort of overlaid by the memory 
of the moon letters, right? The, the revelation of the special message. Now, this is particularly relevant, of course, in one sense, uh, to the uh, to the 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 on the doorstep situation, because it was the moon letters that appeared on the map, which told about Durin's day and the thrush knocking and the gray stone and all of those things, right? Um, so it was through the moon letters, um, which do you remember what kind of moon? What moon does it have to be in order to reveal? It's not just any moon that's going to reveal the moon letters, right? Um, what kind of moon uh, would reveal the... Uh, yeah, it did have to be midsummer and a crescent moon. That's exactly it. That's exactly it. Yep. Yep. Um, yep, the same moon when the runes were written in which he speculates that it was written, that it, they were written by a crescent moon um, possibly on midsummer's day, right? Um, but... Um, but yeah, so, okay, so it was a crescent moon. I just mentioned that because there are, in fact, crescent moons also depicted uh, on this gate as it, as it, uh, as it happens. Um, so, okay. One of the things that we already touched on last time is that there is a, there is a significant and almost comical shift that I think comes into closer focus here um, with this particular parallel. Um, that is to say, we were looking at how when we're when we sort of follow along with the cue to juxtapose the previous scene, like the previous passage, or you know this 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 overall scene with the scene in the Hobbit, with the on the doorstep scene. The biggest difference between the two is kind of the occasion, that sense of destiny, right? Um, if they hadn't come there on that special day, right, with the particular key, um, it was almost impossible to get into, you know, it, the, 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 the conditions that had to be met for them to be able to open that door and get in that way were almost impossible to do, right? They didn't even know when exactly Doran's day was, um, and, you know, it had to, all the conditions, not to mention the local weather conditions had to be correct and the, you know, the thrush and the snails and everything else. Right. Um, and the key. So it was this uh, the opening of the door was this uniquely like organized by destiny sort of moment. Right. Um, and um, here the circumstances are quite different, right? Um, Gandalf is emphasizing that this door was not a door like that. Um, this is not a door that's only, that's meant to be such a secret as that. Still a dwarf door, right? Not uh, uh, designed to be um, uh, uh, seen while shut. Um, and clearly, as we were discussing, you know, as Trifle was pointing out last time, obviously, strong enough to thwart Sauron and his armies who came up this way and failed to enter Moria. Um, which does suggest, I agree, as again Trifle was suggesting, um, that that suggests the password is not a simple, it's not a matter of anybody who waltzes up the path and reads the sign aloud. 
um, will have the doors open for them. Um, I certainly agree with Trifle's premise um, that Sauron was quite clever enough uh, to figure out the instructions that were carved on the gate um, uh, eventually. Um, so, anyhow, I, the, the uh, but nevertheless, the point remained that although these gates certainly could be secure, um, they were um, they were not. They were not sort of secret and unique. You didn't have to be, you know, the returning king coming at the moment of destiny uh, in order to open those doors. Again, we're reminded of it once more in this scene, where we have the reappearance of what are compared, um, what are compared to moon letters, right? Um, though. So, if we, um, let's read this carefully again and make sure we're understanding it. The moon now shone upon the gray face of the rock. So the moon is shining already, but they could see nothing else for a while after Gandalf does his thing. Then slowly on the surface, where the wizard's hands had passed, faint lines appeared, like slender veins of silver running in the stone. At first they were no more than pale gossamer threads, like, like spiderweb so fine that they only twinkled fitfully where the moon caught them. But steadily they grew broader and clearer until their design could be guessed. Um, so, okay. So I do not believe that we are being told that these actually are moon letters. They're certainly not moon letters in the same way, right? Yeah, Little Room Johnny, that's one of the things I'm trying to figure out is... Oh, sorry. I don't know why that did that. That was really weird. I just clicked on it and it moved. That was strange. Anyway, um, let's look back a second again. See what Gandalf does, right? He's just said, Eyes that know what to look for may discover the signs. He walked forward to the wall... Right between the shadow of the trees, there was a smooth space, and over this he passed his hands to and fro, muttering words under his breath. Then he stepped back. So, he is saying something. Um, this is not just... Like, he's not just brushing the face of the stone off, such that it now reflects the moonlight. Right. Um... And yes, as Fourth Dauntless says, he'll he'll say in a moment that he thought deeply before he could recall the revealing words. Yes, exactly. Um, right. So, I don't think he could see them. He just remembered that uh, they might be revealing here. Um, we don't know what words he's muttering. Um... But, hang on, we gotta go backwards this way. Okay. Um, but there is some kind of active, there appears to be some kind of incantation that Gandalf has to utter. So these were not automatic. This wasn't just standing there open and revealed, right? It's not even that it, you know, they were like, um, again, concealed 
and they had to be it had to be like cleaned off uh, before you could see the silver uh, veins of it again. Um, Lupita, I don't know for sure. It's a really good question. Does the revealing require magic or just the words? Yeah, I don't know. On the one hand, you'd think it wouldn't require magic. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, uh, I don't exactly. That, that's I, for Thalos, it's for the sake of the dwarves that I was thinking that. You know, would uh, the Noldor who lived here, like your average, you know, Joe Noldor who's coming into, you know, with a delivery for Casa Doom, um, you know, have enough magic to be able to. Yeah, I, I and I know that's always whenever anybody says magic trifle, I'm thinking the same thing, um, you know, define magic. Right. But no, I think the question, though, is still a very sensible one. Um, because, yeah, sure, magic does often consist in words, it seems. But what I'm not sure I believe in. Yeah, what I'm not sure I believe in is what people might call magic words, right? That is like a, a word or phrase which is itself intrinsically magical such that anybody who says it under almost any circumstance like could cause these things to happen, right? Um, it is true that words are often the vehicle of magic and we see this with Gandalf himself already. Um, uh, but, um, yeah, exactly. The question we're asking is, if somebody like Sam knew the words and said them, would the Athildim glow? Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think, yes, I think that I think that the magic of that is probably in the door rather than um, in, in this case, the wizard. Right, who opened it. As I say, I don't believe in magic words. I don't think that there is any potency in the word itself. Um, um, I'm trying to think if there are any examples of such things. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, if there's any ex any examples of like a word or phrase which is simply magical, like no matter who says it and under what circumstances. And I don't think so. Yeah, no, the other examples, things like Aragorn not wanting Sam to mention Mordor, right, under Weathertop. It's not that that word is magical, right? Nor Theoden's telling Mary not to say words of ill omen. I saw somebody mention that as well. Um, uh, no. Uh, I, I, that's... Um, I don't believe... And even there, like... There's a bunch of things that the Rohirrim believe, for instance, about Galadriel and Lothlorien, which are not true, Right? Um, I don't think that Mary talking about the paths of the dead is actually going to cause anything to change 
in the primary world, right? Um, uh, yeah. No, there's Gandalf's words, word of power. But again, I don't believe if Ted Sandyman says Gandalf's word of power that he uses to close the door, it's going to work, right? That's what I mean. That's what I mean. That's what I mean when I'm the distinction that I'm drawing. Again, is magic often done with words? Yeah, totally. Um, uh, Gandalf saying the One Ring poem in the council. They don't like that one little bit, right? But again, it's not because it's a magic word. Um, it pains them to hear the black speech. Um, but, you know, that's just part of their refined literary tastes, right? I think. Um, but, um, but anyway, yeah, so that's, again, what I talk about when I talk about magic words. Um, Matt had mentioned Ted Sandyman, and that seems a, a fine illustration, right? Um, I don't think that there are any words which would, you know, magically affect the primary world if Ted Sandyman accidentally uttered them, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Rowan, uh, tempt me not uh, to return to that scene uh, in the Council of Elrond, but I'm pretty sure no magic is actually done there. Um, yeah. Anyway. Um, well, no, Bjorning the Pilkelman, well, first of all, it's pretty weird. Um, yep, yeah, don't worry about Gandalf's word of command. First of all, we're getting there, and not in the very far distant future. Secondly, it's Gandalf, and he is telling us about how he's exerting his power and his will at the time, right? Which is a totally different situation than the one I am currently describing. Um, the question is, do we think that if Ted Sandyman said whatever phrase Gandalf just said, the Athildin would light up? And I'm going with, yes, I think it would. Not because those are magic words, but because the magic is in the door. It's part of the magic of the Athildin itself, right? Um, so, again, I doubt that one has to have, you know, the will and the, you know, ability to do, you know, to, to command the primary world in the way that hobbits call magic, um, in order to do this, because that would make it impossible for lots of people. And that does not seem to be the way that this, that these doors were set up. Um, but could magic of that kind have been placed in these doors? I see no reason to believe. Why not? Right. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Bjorning, exactly. That's kind of what I'm thinking, that this fits with what we were already speculating, that the magic of the doors have something of a friendship detector already in them um, so that they won't, again, just open to like Sauron if he comes up and says the word melon there. Um, there's reason to believe that that would not work. Right? I Just the fact that he didn't invade Moria. Um, so, um, I don't know that the doors have to be exactly aware, Kurtzimus, because I don't know the mechanics of the elf magic that would be involved. Um, but, um, but this, that 
they would respond to particular words in order to light up the affilding that will that has you know the password right there on it um that seems yes <laughs> so first fish i am afraid that it is in fact looking more and more like this door does in fact have two-factor authentication built into it yeah um exactly if you just come to the if you come to the doors when they're shut and blank as they are right now you have to both know the uh the words that make the affilding appear and then uh be able to say melon and have that um, and have that affected um yeah yeah anyway um so yes i think that that's uh that does seem to be more or less how it seems to have worked um Miss Ray, that's a really good question. And I saw so someone else had mentioned something like this before as well. Um, and I don't know. Um, thinking of the spirits of the rocks in Holland that talk to Legolas, could there be rock spirits involved here too to listen? Well, I wonder. I, I mean, I can't absolutely rule it out. Um, one thing I can say is it would be we already have a sort of irony built in to that other um, built into that other uh, encounter, right? That is to say, the passage where Legolas talks about the rocks and what he hears the rocks saying um, is already in the same chapter as, you know, just a little bit later in that same chapter, they're going to be going up Karathras. Um, and listening to the voice of Karathras, right, who is distinctly not friendly, of course, as we know. Um, but so the the kind of irony or contrast between the wistful things, right, the wistful memories of the stones of Holland, um, and the uh, pointed malevolence um, of the spirit of Karathras in Karathras, um, that again that that is a very noticeable contrast and irony, right? So this would be sort of the third step if there were, in fact, stones, right? Well, even if we forget about the spirits for a second, the fact that we've just had, uh, they have just encountered the unfriendship of Karathras and been turned aside by it. And so now they're coming to these other cliffs. And remember the descriptions of these cliffs as we were coming up the, the valley towards them, right? You know, with these uh, these cliffs frowning down on them and all sorts of things. Exactly. They're, they were very frowny before, right? But what's the secret? Turns out the secret is to walk up to them and say that you're their friend, right? And if you're their friend, then they'll let you in those cliffs. And that, of course, is exactly what's going to happen. So, uh, so Ms. Ray, whether or not it relates to um, whether there is any sentient being, um, you know, any sentient spirit in the rocks of this cliff or not. Um, and I know, I am sure that there are many of you who find that idea kind of cringy, um, who are really uncomfortable with the idea of like 
nature spirits you can communicate with. Like the whole landscape is full of these nature spirits uh, that you can communicate with. But we have to acknowledge that was very much a part of Tolkien's imagination. He doesn't put it in the final text. He takes out most. Mm, let me go with many of the passages that point to that. Um, but there is a lot of evidence that he tended to think that way. Um, evidence that spans all the way back from the Book of Lost Tales, uh, where we hear about all of the minor uh, spirits who are, you know, allied with the Valar and such, um, all the way up through the early drafts of the Lord of the Rings itself. And yes, Little Room Johnny, exactly. Goldberry is a very big exception, right? She's very, very big. She seems to be exactly that sort of spirit, right? Who has, um, you know, taken on uh, this, uh, you know, the, the, the womanly form that we see her in, but she seems to be exactly that kind of spirit. Um, so between, um, between Goldberry, Old Man Willow, and uh, in some sense, Tom Bombadil himself, not in the same sense necessarily, but, you know, he seems to fit more in that world uh, than in the world of the elves and hobbits and, and dwarves and men, right? Um, anyway, yeah, and with the awakening of the Huorns, the idea that the whole tree, yes, um, from the time we've, en we've entered the Old Forest, even before, long before we meet Goldberry and Tom Bombadil in the Old Forest, this sense of everything in it being more awake, right? Very much more aware. This is another experience that Mary and Pippin are going to have in, in, in Fangorn as well, right? Um, you know, there is this sense that as the world has gone on and aged, it isn't that, you know, like the, just these spirits have gone to sleep, um, but they can be waked up again as they are in Fangorn, right? Um, in all of the horns and as the forest marches to war. Um, so, um, anyway, it's just, I, as I say, I know that this idea, the idea that there are sentient spirits dwelling within the various features of the mountainside, um, you know, of like the, sorry, not just the mountainside, of the landscape, right? I, th this is to many a strange and alien kind of idea. But it is certainly uh, an idea that we see explicitly, not only still in many passages uh, in the published Lord of the Rings, such as the Old Forest in particular, Thangorn to some extent, and certainly I think Karathros as well. Um, um, but, um, but again, if you look back at his drafts and some of his other writings, both early and late, uh, you can see him continuing to think in this way, even though he doesn't often write in this way, even though he also tended to cut those passages out. But again, I think the suggestion of the ones that are left, such as Goldberry, for instance, suggests that he didn't cut them out because he was removing that from his conception of the world. Um, but because he knew that it was tangential, you know, it was, it was, it was not, it was not so relevant to the main story that he was telling. Um, anyway, yes, and I agree with all of you um, about the comparisons with C.S. Lewis, too. Not that that proves anything about Tolkien's work, but yes, you can see um, that when 
C.S. Lewis also was imagining, um, you know, sort of a, a similar enchanted landscape, um, you know, his own fantasy other world um, that was separate from our world or, you know, but connected with it. In Narnia, he also had spirits. His was a more, I don't know, uh, Greek sort of idea of, you know, wood nymphs and, you know, naiads and dryads and uh, fauns and all that sort of thing. Um, again, which, as I say, is relatively Greek, um, so more purely Greek. But in any case, um, uh, the um, they're not the same, nor, again, is there any causal relationship. But if it helps you to kind of acclimate yourself to remember that, then that could be helpful. Um, anyway, um, so, so yes, I don't think that the question, the question of, is there a spirit living in this cliff, which could have been, or still be complicit in this? Could that have been part of it? Um, could it have been, could there be a spirit in this mountain or in these cliffs which Narvi and Celebrimbor could have worked with and spoken to um, and, you know, have, like, agreed to play some sort of role in the keeping and watching of this door. I don't think we, we could rule that out at all. I mean, I, I don't think that there's any evidence to prove that by any means, and I don't see anything that suggests it really obviously, again, other than the purely circumstantial evidence, um, you know, those, those other references that we might wonder if they're relevant here. Um, but, um, yeah. Um, but, but I think it's, it's a, it's a perfectly valid speculation, I think. Um, and of course, if you were to adopt that as a hypothesis, it might also help to explain Gimli's pressing his ear against the stone, right? Can he can he hear it, right? Is is he actually trying to communicate with it in some sense? Um, I don't know, um, but um, yeah. So who knows? Don't know, but I don't think it's. I, I certainly don't think it's it's a ridiculous question. Um, uh, but um, yeah. Dr. Benway, I think it very likely that the, that all three peaks of Khazad Doom are, in this sense, kind of animated, right? Um, Gimli does speaks, speak of them all in a way that I think would be consistent with their being sentient. Um, it doesn't prove it exactly, but it would, again, it would be consistent with it. Um, and, um, so yeah, it's entirely who knows entirely. Now, one the one thing I would also say, it was Legolas who was talking that way about stone spirits, and not um, it was it was Legolas who was hearing from the stones and not Gimli. Um, we I'm trying to think. I don't believe there is any evidence of Gimli ever talking like this, even when he's waxing poetic about the glittering caves. He's not going to speak in these terms. The terms we've just been discussing, that is. He's not going to talk about, you know, um, 
you know, communing with them or, or connecting with the spirits of the stones in there. Um, he will talk about nurturing the stones and, you know, sort of growing them like, you know, tending them like elves would tend gardens or orchards. Um, but he doesn't speak of, you know, sort of communing, communicating or communing with them uh, in any sort of sense in that way. Um, but, um, ooh, oh, Johannes, that is really interesting. That's marvelous. Johannes is remembering that passage a little bit later where Gimli is going to say, when he's asked if he can hear anything, that he uh, hears only the night speech of rock and stone. I never thought of that passage in that way. Um, that Gimli could actually mean, I don't hear anything with the rocks talking like they normally do. Um, uh, anyway, we'll get there. We'll get there. Not going to worry about it, but that is really interesting. That is really interesting. Um, um, yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, boy, you guys are wanting to talk about every single passage, but except this one here tonight. Let's stay focused on this one now. All right. Okay. Um, uh, yes, Arden Crayon, I also had always interpreted it as Gimli's poetic way of describing ordinary nighttime nature sounds. Um, yes, me too. Me too. I'm just wondering if maybe, you know, one could read that in other ways. But in any case, here in this passage, um, Slowly, where the wizard's hands had passed, faint lines appeared, like veins of silver running in the stone. Now, one thing, I do not believe that these stones are glowing. These lines are glowing. I understand why they did it that way in the movie, but I don't think they're glowing. Um... The lines are, are, are said to be like slender veins of silver running in the stone. Um, at first they were so fine that they only twinkled fitfully where the moon caught them, but they grew broader and clearer until their design could be guessed. Yes, Aranas, it does sound like they're reflective, not glowing. Yes. Um... The twinkling fitfully is, I think, the clearest indication that we have of what these lines actually look like. Um, they get broader and clearer as they go, which means presumably they twinkle less fitfully, right? They're able to be seen more clearly in the moonlight. But yes, it's silver, um, silver reflecting, um, reflecting the moonlight. Um, and yes, Cal Elros, I agree. I don't think it's necessary. It wouldn't technically be two-factor authentication. I don't think you have to do the... I bet you if you came up to the blank face and just said the word Melon, 
it would open and you wouldn't have to light up the Athilding. You know, you wouldn't have to reveal the Athilding in order to do it. Um, interestingly, Maureen, I don't think we've been told the phase of the moon. Did he mention it? Mention the phase of the moon? How big the moon is? There are crescent moons in the inscription. Um, but um, but I don't know that he... I don't, I don't remember him saying how full the moon was. Um, the fact that it's shining, you know, distinct moonlight suggests it's not a tiny little crescent. Um, no, 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 I'm not suggesting the phase of the moon is relevant because I don't think it is. Um, I'm just trying to picture the scene. Um, how much light there is, is my only question. I don't believe... Okay, waning moon, there we go. The night was old. Thank you, JJ. Uh, and westward, the waning moon was setting, gleaming fitfully through the, through the breaking clouds. Okay, so we know it's waning, but we don't know exactly how big it is. So, um, so presumably somewhere in the middle. So maybe like a half moon-ish. Some sort of gibbous moon is what we're, uh, what probably I'm imagining uh, here. Um, yeah. I suppose. Um, yeah. April says what, um, what Gandalf has done is take the door off sleep mode. Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so we're not to be imagining glowing l lines because, right, I don't believe that has been described that way at all. Just lines of silver, which, when broad and clear, would reflect the moon more clearly and be pretty clearly visible. Um... Ah, the moon was full after the genocide of the crows passed over. Okay, so if is that the genocide of crows? That was several days ago now, so definitely a gibbous moon. Definitely, like, more than half then. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, all right. The description. At the top, as high as Gandalf could reach, was an arch of interlacing letters in an elvish character. Below, though the threads were in places blurred or broken, the outline could be seen of an anvil and a hammer, surmounted by a crown with seven stars. Beneath these again were two trees, each bearing crescent moons. More clearly than all else, there shone forth in the middle of the door a single star with many rays. Freebeard says, give us some crows. <laughs> uh, paraphrasing Saruman. I love it. Gibbets and crows, you remember, is his line. Um, okay. So, one of the things that I'm interested in here is the description, the verbal description that we get of this and 
the actual illustration that Tolkien does, right? Um, yeah, hang on now. We're not to the script yet. I'm, we will get there. But, um, so here's Tolkien's illustration. Now, there are a lot of details here that aren't necessarily described. Like, again, if we go back, what does he say? He says, there was an arch of interlacing letters. So it sounds like just writing in an arch, right? So like writing that curves across the top is what it sounds like. And then there's an outline and a hammer and there's a crown above it surrounded by a crown with seven stars. And then beneath them were two trees each bearing crescent moons. And then in the middle there shone forth a single star with many rays. Um, again, what interests me is that when Tolkien drew it, he drew something which would certainly not be what I would picture. I'm not saying his drawing is wrong. I'm just saying it is interesting to me to compare and contrast the verbal description that he makes and the actual thing that he put. Um, that's an excellent question, Sphinx. Where are the, the crescent moons? They're there, but I wouldn't have imagined it like that in a thousand years. Yeah, see? The crescent moons, it's bearing crescent moons. Like literally, as it would bear fruit. The crescent moons are growing on the tree. You see? Um, yeah, I know, right? Like, I, that's like sort of bonkers. I would never have thought of that. Now, we do have other precedent for this. Um, that is, Tolkien has drawn this once before. Um, uh, in, um, another one of his pictures. I'll see if I can remember to grab that for next time. I don't have it to slap up on screen right now. Um, it's the the one with Teniquitil in the middle and like framed by the trees and you can see the sun and the moon growing like fruit on the trees. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, like I said, I'd have to um I'd have to get it, but um, anyway, the point is, this is not unique to Tolkien's imagination. He's imagined it this way before, and it, it's kind of connected. So some of these, I think, are just leaves, like these ones that stick up are just leaves, whereas these curvy ones are crescent moons. So it's bearing crescent moons. Um, uh it's bearing crescent moons like a tree bears fruit. Um, okay, that's peculiar. But 
three other things I would point to. One, the columns. No reference to the columns. It just says there's the arch. Of, well, first, there's the arch of letters, right? Is there an arch of writing? Yes. But there is, in fact, a solid arch that has writing on it, right? I mean, again, I'm not trying to say did it wrong or anything like that, but I'm just saying it's not exactly or not exclusively what he describes. Not to mention the little curly cues around the top obviously doesn't say anything about those. Um, but um, but he has this like solid banner, which then has the writing. Whereas again in the in the verbal description he just says there was writing in an arch, like an arch of writing across the top, and he says nothing about these columns, which the uh, which the trees are winding around, which would seem to be supporting what looks like a solid arch with writing on it. Right. Um, and then there are these runes to the right and left in the top corners. What are those about? Right. Doesn't doesn't mention those at all. And then there's the crown. Right. Remember how he described this. Um, the outline could be seen of an anvil and a hammer surmounted by a crown with seven stars. Surmounted by a crown with seven stars. Um, so there's a crown and there are seven stars. The crown has one of them, one of the seven stars, which seems to be attached to it at the very top, right? Like the propeller on a beanie. And then the other six stars are flanking it, three on each side, but they're not attached to the crown at all. It's not a, a I mean, it's a crown with seven stars in the sense that it's a, a a crown which seems to have seven stars as its friends and neighbors, right? But there are not, in fact, seven stars. On, it looks more like seven stars with a crown. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, yes. Yes. Um, so, yes, absolutely the seven stars would be associated with Durin's crown that he saw above his head in the mirror mirror. Absolutely. Um, yeah. <laughs> you're, you're sure that Tolkien uh, exactly wanted uh, that star on the top to be just, uh, compared to the, the propeller on a beanie? Uh, uh, Tolkien? Yeah. Or JJ? Yeah. Well, I agree. That Tolkien probably would not like that very much. Um, but then again, Let's face it, it is not the most unkind thing that could be said about Tolkien's pictures of hats, right? Tolkien was a marvelous artist, and I love his artistic work. But I've never really thought that the drawing of headgear was one of his personal specialties. Um, in any case, um, so what's my point here? Again, I'm not trying to nitpick and say that uh, I think this is that like Tolkien's done a bad job of illustrating this. I think the point is quite different. The point is these two things that is Tolkien's drawing and the textual description, these are different things. These are different artifacts, right? Um, and I think they're meant to sort of to do different 
different. When Tolkien makes an illustration like this and provides it to us, it, you know, is, um, it becomes sort of obviously authoritative. And obviously this is what we all picture when he's describing it. But if we kind of free ourselves from that and just look at this, that's not, in fact, what he describes. Here's the, here, let, let, me, let me more swiftly get to the point that I'm trying to make here. The point I'm making is Tolkien's image, which gets inserted in the book and which we're all familiar with, is an adaptation of the text. Um, and like every adaptation, it does some of its own thing. Um, th the thing that works better in its medium. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yes, it's an adaptation. That illustration is an adaptation. Another uh, sort of conclusion to be drawn about this, or rather a thing to which perhaps our attention could be drawn by this phenomenon, that is the phenomenon, the phenomenon of the differences between the text that he wrote and the, the adaptation of that text that he drew, is how much he left to the imagination, which he's always doing, right? Um, he is always, he rarely describes much in detail. Um, he and he he talks about this a little bit. He talks about this as uh, indirectly. He talks about this in on fairy stories when he talks about the the evocative power of the medium of story compared to things like to visual media. Um, like at the, at the time he was talking about. Uh, theater and the um, the challenge of doing a theatrical a good theatrical adaptation of a fairy tale and the point is I I always I've often heard people say things that suggested to me they're missing the point of what he's talking about that is uh, people saying oh well you know Tolkien's saying that you know you can't really capture fairy tales in in plays because he you know, he like stage technology and like uh, special effects in, on both on stage and on, you know, screen hadn't progressed to the point where they could accomplish it yet. So he, he couldn't imagine it being done well, but it can now it can totally be done well. But that's not his primary point really at all. Um, and actually, Freebeard, I, Free, Freebeard, Freebird, Freebeard, also that would be a name. Um, Freebird, I don't accept the landscapes, actually. He does not describe landscapes very much. That is, in as you would need to describe them in order to convey exactly what they look. He tells us what is in them, right? He may tell you the kinds of trees that are there, but he doesn't describe it. Like he, if you, if we read those descriptions and drew our own pictures as carefully as we could, even assuming we're all really good artists. Um, drew the pictures, trying to be as literal as we can in rendering what he describes, we would all draw very different things, right? Um, and um, 
anyway, yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, uh, copy to pasty on Twitch. I completely agree. People go crazy about how he has chapters of landscape description, but it's more like a paragraph or so every now and then at most. Yes. And again, and he doesn't describe things like he doesn't even tell you things like colors or anything. He'll just say what's what's there. Right. And we were talking about this a little bit at Osmoot, how even in a uh, like one of the most famously detailed passages of landscape description is that description of Athelion when they first get into it. Right. Um, you know, the um, uh, the Tamarisk and pungent Terebinth. Uh, uh, yeah. The, uh, uh, the 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 pungent Terebinth description, if you know the one I mean. Um, and um, but again, that's mostly a catalog. It's exactly, Arnaz, it's a list of plants. It's a list of plants. It doesn't describe anything. It doesn't describe a landscape. Again, you can't get a clear picture, visual picture of what's there. But what it does is it gives a bunch of prompts. Um, uh, a bunch of prompts for you to populate your imagination. Right. Um, anyway, yeah. Little Room Johnny, you're right. Um the landscape describes the characters more than it describes the land, yes, and kind of helps you get a feeling for what the people walking through that landscape are thinking and feeling, yes, yeah, exactly. Um, yes. There are places, I agree, there's, there is some more description in the Fangorn chapters. I think that's true. Like the hanging beards of lichen and things like that get described a little bit more. Um, but um, in any case, back to this passage here, the point I'm making is that even here, where he is the one describing it and he is the one drawing it, right? Um, he left a lot of room for his own imagination here as well. So when he applies that imagination, right, when he applies himself as an artist, visual artist, to the challenge of depicting the thing that he describes here in this paragraph, he adds to it all of these other features that aren't there in the text, right? Because it was necessary. He found it necessary to do so. Um, if you did a literal, simple, literal drawing of what he describes here, it wouldn't look exactly like what he drew, right? And that, of course, is perfectly fine, right? It's perfectly fine. Um, uh, yeah. Anyway, um, I just found that interesting. I found this a really interesting uh, thing because, of course, I had, um, I had just, I mean, as, as you saw, I inserted the image here um, and... Uh, I had inserted the image and then gone back to the text and I was immediately noticing just having, you know, put them sort of next to each other like this. Um, I was really noticing it just the, the differences were jumping out at me. Um, and again, it's not, he hasn't exactly contradicted and it, there's, there's no description here that doesn't work with what he put, but what he made was more. And, Back to the on fairy stories point. The point that he was making there 
is the reason that you can't, it is, you're never going to create the same effect is that you can simply evoke the imagination um, with text. The example, of course, that he gives, you can say that there was bread on the table. You can just say that. There was bread on the table. Um, but if you're going to depict it visually, if you're going to do a stage play or a movie with, of a scene with bread on the table, you have to choose a particular loaf, right? Like, what kind of loaf is it? Is it brown bread? White bread? You know, crusty Italian? What kind of bread is it, right? Um, and once you've chosen, you've locked it, right? You now have deprived the reader of the opportunity to populate that table with whatever bread fit their imagination, right? Um, and it's exactly the kind of thing which he said, like multiple readers won't have the same experience there. There's a kind of freedom that's allowed if you, and that's the experience he was saying cannot be replicated. And that's why he find he, that's that kind of, it's one of the main reasons that he was arguing that he finds visual adaptations, that he finds um, the stage a poor medium for fairy tales because fairy tales are all about exactly that kind of evoking of imagination. Um, and when you can't do that, when that power is lost to you, the raising of images which can connect deeply with readers precisely because they're not specific. And of course, this is an experience you can see this experience with things like Tolkien's characters as well, right? There's a reason he doesn't give us physical descriptions for most of the characters. He doesn't tell us exactly, you know, it doesn't, he doesn't tell us in the story necessarily things like what color their hair is or how tall they are. It's not that he doesn't know, right? When asked... He can tell you, as we saw. Uh, remember, like, Aragorn is 6'4", and um, what, Boromir is 6'2", I think. I mean, he knows these things, right? He thought this through. Um, but he... Um, uh, but he doesn't say that, or even suggest it. I mean, he talks about their being tall, right, at various points. But he doesn't say how tall. Um you know, he, 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 he leaves that to us. Right. Um, and, um, yeah, yeah. We do know that Boromir isn't bald, uh, Aranas. Yes. You're right about that. Uh, we know the length of his hair, uh, but do we know its color? I don't think we know what color Boromir's hair is. Um, did he say, I don't remember that he did. I remember its length, but I don't remember its color. Um, dark, right? Okay. So we know he's not blonde, right? Anyway, um, but, um, uh, yeah, anyway, the point is just about the details he gives and doesn't give. And of course, when we stop and we read the text carefully as we're doing, as we've been doing here, um, 
it's um it becomes more noticeable and i just want to kind of draw attention to it um and i think it's fun i think it's fun to um uh, i think it's fun to notice and for many of us we will have been populating this with our own imaginations to such you know for so long that we don't even realize that many of the things that have been in our heads for years are not in the text um and that's by the way that's one of the reasons that we often have as strong reactions to adaptations as we do because we look at them we're like that's not what was in my head right um even though sometimes it's only from our head um but um anyway um okay um yes well gosh jj you are correct he doesn't say much about the length of the hair of elves no does he um Yes. And also, I mean, several of you have been referring to the fact, and you're right, um, the, the movies have had that effect on many. And I remember first seeing the movies, that being one of the things that I was regretting, and I've kind of regretted it ever since, um, in one sense. Regretted. So, like, for instance, every time I see somebody drawing a picture right i see a fan art that is just labeled as a character like here's a picture of frodo or you know here's a picture of boromir but what they've actually drawn is a picture of elijah wood or a picture of sean bean right it um it always makes me a little bit sad not there's anything wrong with those depictions or with you know like with the those characterizations in the film or with people liking those, right? Um, but there's something that always strikes me a little bit sad of a of another artist like picture that the extent to which it the suggestion and it, it's just a sort of suggestion doesn't necessarily mean this, but the suggestion that that person's imagination of Frodo has been so completely eclipsed, like so completely determined by the film makes me a little bit sad. Um, and uh, anyway, like I said, there's nothing wrong with it. <laughs> there's nothing wrong with it. But it makes it, it makes me a little bit sad. Um, and I know that I, I, I often try to resist that. Um, I remember talking with an artist right before the Hobbit films came out. Talking with an artist who was... Um, had done lots and lots of Tolkien art and he was describing how he was frantically drawing pictures of Bilbo and Thorin and the dwarves from the Hobbit um, before the film came out, how he'd been avoiding any, as much as possible, any imagery, any like trailers or anything like that. And he was just like frantically drawing pictures of his pic of his image of Bilbo and the dwarves before the films came out and could, you know, influence it. Um, uh, I, I, that was, I thought that that was, that was interesting. Um, 
but um, anyway, um, yeah. So um, anyhow, as I say, there's nothing wrong with it, but it is this passage is a really interesting um, illustration of sort of the nature and the boundaries between visual adaptation and written description. The description says nothing about columns holding up an arch. Once Tolkien draws the picture, there are columns holding up the arch. And that's how everyone's going to picture it from now on. Right. Um, by the way, I think there is no question in my mind why Tolkien chose to do this illustration. He doesn't illustrate. There are a lot of things he does not illustrate. He does some illustrations, of course, for his book. Emily, exactly. He did it not only to write Elvish, but to write Elvish and teach people Tengwar. Um, this is such a, an obvious teaching tool um, to give to give the the ex, the the um, inscription down here in English characters and then up here in Tengwar characters. Um, yeah, Cal Elros says I also wonder why he wrote the leaves from the Book of Mizarbo. Yeah. Exactly. Same reason, right? Um, exactly, Emily. He's kind of made the Rosetta Stone of Middle-earth here, right? Um, especially since he's going to give the English translation as well, right? So he's going to give the English translation of this phrase. Then he's going to write it out carefully in, uh, you know, in Sindarin, but in but in. English characters, and then he's going to write it out in Tengwar, specifying that it's in the mode of Beleriand. Right? Um, yeah. So cool. So cool. Um, anyway. We will see more of that. Um, James Tauber did a whole space module on this. That is, the passages, like, what you can learn of elvish languages and scripts just by reading the Lord of the Rings, these passages, and this of course is one of the most famous ones, um, where he is going out of his way to embed in the text itself. We've already passed one of the other very famous ones, the one where he gives the um, the names of the mountains, right, in elvish, dwarvish, and English, right? So he gives the nine different names of the three different mountains, right? Um, and um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyhow, um, so this is um, uh, this is as and we we will see more of it in next week's class. But um, okay. Anyway, um, it is getting late. Um, so that is that is uh, enough for this evening. We will get into the actual inscription. Um, and that'll bring us back to the to the drawing again uh, next time. But thanks, everybody. We're going to do our field trip now. Uh, field trip time. Thanks to those who um, 
were uh, only able to join us for the text discussion here this evening. Our field trip tonight, we are headed up to Karathras at last, so we've returned to Eregion, and we are now going, because we've had all of the stories of all of the things in Eregion now, uh, so we're going to go back to that. Um, all right. So, again, thanks, everybody. Thanks for our text, people. And it is field trip time. How are you this evening, Druid's Fire? Uh, recovering. <laughs> recovering. Yes, I know. Yes. You had not only a an overnight work session, but that right after uh, being our American liaison for Osmu. Indeed so. It, I'm still an Aussie time, I think. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I wouldn't be surprised at all. Um, exactly. So uh, for those of you who don't know, Druid's Fire is our, um, our, our hybrid moot facilitator. Um, she is the one who uh, is our Zoom master and enables everybody to connect with us, uh, which means that she was um, up until like 5 a.m. Uh, or so uh, on several of the days as we were uh, enjoying our live shenanigans down in uh, down in Australia. Uh, I, I have to say I do have the best job working for Sigum, to be true, because I get to watch all the moots. <laughs> yes, yes. It is fun. You and I are like the only two people who go to every single mood. Best job ever. Yeah, exactly. Um, somebody was joking uh, at Osmoot that we should have t-shirts made. Uh, mine can say Hroa and yours can say Fea. And like between the two of us, yeah. we, uh, uh, we attend all the moods either in, in body That's or in true. spirit. All right. So... Uh, Let's go. We did the, um, yes, Echadaregian is where we did our milestone. All right, so we're going to return to Echadaregian. Cal Elros, should uh, Discord be renamed to a Sanway? Well, let me tell you, that would be a less unfortunate name than Discord. All right. Okay, Thank so we're gonna everybody. we're gonna mount up here. All right. Okay, so we're gonna go up the Redhorn Pass. Is our first. The snows are fierce. Our first stop here. All right. So we're back to Eregion. These presumably are some of the rocks that wouldn't talk to Legolas. Now, okay. So we just have to head pretty much... That's the pass, right? Pretty much due west of us, right? Between the two mountains? Um, due east of us, yes. East also is exactly what I meant. <laughs> um, which one's Karathras? The one on the left? I believe it might be the one on the right. One on the right. Okay. Huh. Are they? La is it labeled? No, it's not labeled. All right. I believe they actually do label them in the Dimrel Dale side, but I honestly okay. can't remember which one. Maybe. Which. All right. So let's um, let's head over here. Now we don't know the exact. Um. Oh yeah, that's my excuse. They do have them named on the the Dimrel Dale side. On the Dimrel Dale side. 
going uh, from Karathras is in the north, Fanduil is to the east, and Celebdil is to the south. So okay, the so gates are out of uh, Celebdil. So Karathras is probably the one on the left, then? That, yes. Okay. All right. Um, so, uh, what was I going to say? I was going to say that um, it looks like the taller of the two mountains. And we don't know. There's no indication here in Eregion, is there, of where the genocide of crows passed over them? I don't think that that little dell is a site in the game, is it? No, I don't think they've actually mentioned there. There's a deed involving um, the ring lore and finding certain things. That, there is a campsite that we can see. Right. That's up in. That's up north of here, isn't it? Uh, yes, it is. Let's start there. Actually, I'd forgotten about that campsite. Um. remember exactly where it is over here. So I think yeah, we don't I don't believe that in game we're given any indication okay, so these rocks up to the right are just like where the wolf dens are, right? Yes, they are. Okay. Um, isn't it up around over in this direction, my seem to be going in more or less the right way somewhere up here. My vague memory of having done that quest ages and ages ago. I think it was. I want to say it's further down the valley. Further down the valley? I think so. It's been so long since I've done it last year. This is a very ominous looking stump. Mm. This stump looks like it's just about to eat you right up. Um, okay, this is too far east? Okay. I didn't remember it being... I said I don't remember exactly where it is. Yeah, it's a deed called um, The Ring Goes South. Yes. So, we're tasked with finding the burnt tor. That one's easy to find. Yeah. Find the Karathras campfire. Find the Serenan gate. Easy. Find the High Holland campsite. And then find the Tal Karathras campsite. So, this is the High Holland one that we're looking for, right? Uh, yeah. Is Let it in this valley? Let me go look up the map. It's being, this is Pembar in front of us, I think. Yes. Yeah, I remembered it's being over here, too. That's why I came up here. But I didn't remember it being right in the middle of Pembar. That's why I went further up the valley there. Okay, the High Holland campsite is... Ooh, Arnold has it. Is it 40.2 south and 16.0 west? The High Holland one is at uh, 43.8 and 12.9. 43.8 and 12.9. Okay, that's closer to where we are. 12.9 west? 
So basically, it's due north of the word High Holland. All right on. Okay. So yeah, go due north of the word High and High Holland on the map, and it will. Play. All right, fair enough. So is it twelve point nine? Okay. Us. The High Holland campsite. Didn't we pick stuff up after them in the quest? Or the deed? Wasn't there something? Like where we picked up things that they'd left behind or something like that? Vague memory? Yeah, there are things at each campsite? Okay. I'm not just, mm -hmm. that's a, it's an actual. Yeah, there, there's quests associated with it, yes. Right. Okay, yeah. So this is the, where we, we pick up a forgotten pouch of pipe weed, right, to return later. Yeah, careless hobbit left his mark as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so if we okay. look in the Enidwife, um, I'm sorry, the Aragian deed log, each, each of the locations that we find will have a little bit of flavor text attached to it. Right. The ones you haven't found will say you haven't found it yet. Okay, so the idea is they come down uh, they come down the road from up in the north. I'm looking at the map now. Up in the northeast corner of the map. Right? So they're coming down through... It's the one that comes down through Giant Valley. Correct. In, in uh, Oregon. In, 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 in Trollshaws. So they enter this way and they come down along the Holland Ridge and so that's where we are right now is like tucked up right against the beginning of the Holland Ridge. Yep. So it's where they will have come south and crossed through here. And then they will have headed to the Redhorn Pass. Um, now, they... The Burnt Tor, you can see it on the map, though we haven't been there yet very scrupulously, haven't been there yet. Um, and you can see how, remember in the text, Gandalf says that he led them back down by a different path than the one that they went up yeah. from? Yeah, so they can get closer to the door and have less of a journey to get to it, yes. Yeah, so he went south rather than going back north the way they had come. Um, so this makes sense as uh, part of the route there. Um, from here, so where where are the other camps that we're supposed to go to? This this one this, this is is this the first one? Yeah, this is the first one, and then next one will be basically they're going to cut around this spur, and then start heading southeast to right. cut around the next spur, which is where the wolves are, and then the camp that I was thinking about is actually the Tal Carathras campsite at uh, forty five point nine by eight by seven. Okay, so that one is going to be. Southeast. 
southeast. All right, let's look for that one. Yep. I'm heading that way right now. So yeah, it's before they, before they start climbing, right? Correct. So, what I'm thinking here is ge geographically. So that makes, um, that makes it almost certain that these rocks are some of the rocks that uh, Legolas was hearing from. Like, this would have been the area that they would have been traveling through. Um, mm -hmm. Where? So wait, what was the co next coordinates we're going to? 45.9 by 8.7. Oh, so we, we have to cut almost due east from here then. Yes. 45.9, yeah. I believe it's under this tree, I want to say. Yeah, it's under this tree. So if you look at uh, me and Aaron also here, so if you see two dots in your mini-map that are far to the east, that's where yep. we are. Yep. Aha. Yes. Okay, I remember these now. Okay, so they will have come across here. This can't be the one... Well, right, so here's our second camp. Right, Kendall says, here are the red rocks. Yep, exactly. There's the red, the, the red rocks on those slopes there. Here's their second campsite. Yeah, and the flavor text for the deed says, the company of the ring rested here before continuing on to the Redhorn Gate. Sam Gamgee clearly took the opportunity to provide a fine meal for the company. Right. Is this the place where we find the cook pot? I would imagine so, yes. Yes. Um, now, I don't think... So looking around, neither of those two camps seem to be a very good candidate for the camp where the where they met the genocide of crows. No, neither of them really seem... They didn't feel like a camp. They were just, like, hiding because they were in the middle of their journey anyway. Right, well, they did camp there, camping. but they didn't have a fire. And they... It was described as, like, being in a hollow. Yeah. And this is a larger hollow. I know it does stretch the imagination to picture Sam forgetting a cook pot and leaving that behind. Aranas. I found that highly implausible when I was doing that quest. But, um, yeah, so geographic, like just topographically, I guess I should say, this doesn't look like the description of those camps. But I would have to think that it was somewhere, um, somewhere along the road that we just traveled that the crows, there wouldn't be anything like any memory of it, um, in the, uh, in the landscape, necessarily, because the crows were just flying over top, the carbine were just flying over it, and then, you know, going back and reporting wherever. Um, but, yeah, it would have been somewhere around here. Anyway, so from here, is, there's another campsite on the mountain, right? Yep. In the pass? Up the slopes, yep, in the pass itself. Okay. Yeah, I had forgotten about this quest line. I'm remembering 
the camps visually when we got there, but... There's actually a bit of a road we just passed as well. A bit of a road? Yeah, a bit of the road that leads up to the pass. That, there's two ways to get up the pass. There's the uh -huh. roadway, which presumably our, our heroes would have gone through the first time around. Oh, wait. the Oh, yeah, the road. Should we take the road? Well, they would have. Presumably. presumably. In fact, it's... Isn't it described that there was an old path? I seem to recall that there was, yes. Okay, so this is the road that connects. So, right, so this is the highway by which the elves of Lorien would have come to the theme park. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so let's go this way. This would have been, again, so when Gandalf said, notice I took you down by a different way, that's why they make the two different approaches, right? Exactly right. So you can have the first way that Gandalf took them up, and then the later way. Now, presumably, these orc symbols were, were not here yet. No. Okay. So we're climbing up, but we're not high yet. We're still low down. winding up into the pass. And now we have a steep fall on one side and a cliff on the other side. Well, Anathorn, it would be a little bit um, more realistic to walk up like they did, but um, yeah, it would take much longer. And this still has the marks of the old road. Okay, look, we still have happy trees. Are those flower tree, flowering trees? I think they are blossoms on the trees. Mm -hmm. So, uh, <laughs> Hobbs the Hobbit. Um, uh, no, we don't know exactly. Um, oh, there we go. JJ found the passage. Guided by Aragorn, they struck a good path that looked to Frodo like the r remains of an ancient road that had once been broad and well planned from Holland to the Mountain Pass. There we go. Um, and I do think it very likely that this is where um, Galadriel and company would have turned aside after leaving Minas Tirith. They definitely came to cross this pass. Okay, now we're up past the snow line. Makes me wonder if this is the pass that Galadriel used back in the day. Right. Uh, I mean, probably there was a path made between Lothlorien and Eregion. I mean, that's the whole point of this pass. Okay. Oh, it's snowing now. Oh, dear. So here we can see the path now in the snow. The path on the right side dropping into nothingness. 
and the cliff face on the left side. Yep, it's definitely cold. Visibility is low. And we are in fact climbing up Karathras here on the left hand. So this, this mountain on our left is definitely Karathras. Ah, the Karathras okay. campfire. So this indeed is where they got snowed in. Uh, for those people who don't play the game, these Frost Grims are little spirits of, uh, of like ice that are hostile. And they would, yeah, they would be attacking us, except we're too high level, generally. They're ignoring us. Um, the path does continue. Is this, but this is, this is the campsite? It said this was the campsite. Yes, this is the campsite, and this is where they turn back. Oh, right, there's the, the, there's the little, continued. the little fire pit. So there's the, uh, the wood that Boromir said to bring up and that Gandalf set fire to. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, I love how the Frostgrims are all gathered around. So you can see that it, these Frostgrims, um, I was mentioning earlier tonight that lots of, you know, some readers I have found over the years that some readers are resistant to this idea of there being like nature spirits that are lurking around everywhere in Middle-earth. Um, however, uh, Lotro is not resistant to this idea at all because oh, they right find it gives them a marvelous opportunity to create a diversification of uh, creatures to fight and contend with as they go along. So there are lots of these kinds of uh, uh, ice spirits and fire spirits and stuff of varying levels of malevolent of malevolence. Um, but I and think it's some of them are the nice, like the river maidens. Yes, exactly. Um, and I think it is. Um, uh, it's very cool that they have this campsite permanently surrounded by frostgrims. That is, uh, willful expressions of ice and snow, to sort of show how this is as far as the company got before they had to turn back. And um, uh, they're these. So the, in this context, these Frostgrims are like the representation of Karathras's will, um, inhibiting the company from going any further. Um, so, but we can go a little bit further. We can go a little bit further. So let's go and see if we can um, see if we can fetch the sun. When it's snowing, I find it completely impossible to find my own cursor. True. Same. So, which is hard because it makes it challenging for me to reorient the screen. Because if I do that with my cursor in the wrong place, it goes crazy. So there is a corner that is switchback that heads toward the east, but there's actually a little hillock here. And there's sadly a frozen dwarven corpse. So this is a cliff here, right? Yeah. Do not ride off that cliff. All right. Lovely view. Well, we can vaguely see the other two peaks. Yep. And, well, it also looks like there might be a storm beyond the storm that we're 
Maybe. Okay, but if we... Okay. This is the this is where we switch back continuing on. Yeah, it only goes a little bit further. No, but and we can't go any further. So it makes me wonder if this is actually the path they would have taken because there's clearly no way forward for them is I mean this ice does not look like if this would have been what Karathras threw down on them. So this would have been here beforehand. Right. Um so I'm wondering if they just continued up the actual valley from here rather than trying to go this way. Yes. Because you well, can ride up the valley a little bit. You can ride up the valley, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and you can actually come back from the other side, but you can't ride across from here, unfortunately. We have asked them to do that. Right. Basically. So basically what you're suggesting is that Gandalf was uh, taking them on a completely impassable route? Well, the way that I see it there, it looks like maybe it could have been, but right. it seems unlikely to me that Carothras threw all that really hardcore ice and, and stuff down just along that way. Right. But then again, we've got this big, you know, impassable right here, so. So knows? if we go. I've already lost where their camp was. I always get really effectively um, turned around. Snow blind. Okay, it's yeah. up here. Where? And then there's a shelf to the left. I think I see it over there. Yep. Okay, I see. So, no. So the path would not have continued up that way. It seems unlikely to me that it could have been. Right. Okay. Here we are. So here's their camp. So they would not have taken the turn to the left that we took. No. Going up to go up Karathras, actually up, you go down here to the main pass. This seems the most likely? Yes. Just based on our visual evidence here. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, so it's ironically not too far off the actual uh, summit. Right. Well, well no, summit, that's but the actual. That's good. That makes sense because this is where we can. Where Where is it? Where we can cross over. We can cross over. So isn't there still an actual navigable pass? Not from this side, no. We can't get there this way. No, you cannot cross over this pass at all on this side. There is a pass uh, from the Gladden side that comes back this way, and it drops you down this cliff face, but you can't get back. Right. So in the Vales of Anduin... Yep, you hop on a toboggan, come downhill. Right. Oh, I wish we had toboggans in games. Down, so the pass up from the Duskin Vale. Yep. So okay. if you go to the Vale's Anduin map, it's not the pass from the Duskin Vale. Um, you're going up the pass along the Gladden, the, the 
Vladimir Lake, and it goes up through kids the past the name where it says Kitsukala. Okay, up past there. Yep. We can get up into Oregon that way. Okay. So they do make it possible to come, but so this is, but that's not then this pass exactly because this pass should come out on the other side. Yeah, it's a little bit wacky. Um, yeah, the Redhorn Pass should come out in a different place than it is not. Yeah, because, right, the Redhorn Pass should come out near um, near Lothlorien, you know, near, right, the Dimril Stair. Yep, the Dim- it should come down to the Dimril Stair, yes, but unfortunately it is not. Yes. Um... Okay. Yep. Yep. Right. Okay. And as I recall, you can go up there a ways if you enter it from the mirror mirror side. You can go up the Dimril Stair mm-hmm. and up the oh, yeah. Karathros Pass. But yeah, um, when, when they revamped the Dimril Dimril Dale, uh, when they added the Battle of Azan Nul Bazaar to the yeah. game, they made it so you can go visit um, all th- well basically so much more, a lot of dwarf ruins, um, yeah. and you can get above, above the, you get some amazing views from the other side of the mirror mirror that we've been used to seeing. There's orcs and goblins up there as well. Yeah, yeah. As you might expect. Okay, but basically, they have made the pass of Karathras, the Redhorn Gate pass itself, basically impassable still in the game. Yes, sir. Yep. Okay. So if we come down, so this would be now... This would be the retreat. The retreat. So, right. So as we retreat back, Gandalf not taking them by the same route that they came up. And we'll go when we get to the bottom of the hill. If you don't get sidetracked by some ruins you find on the way down. Right. Okay, we now descend past the snowfall. And down into Ooh, the valley. Ooh, Barry W has an interesting question. Is the Ill yeah, of yeah, it is. the remnant of Morgoth Malice? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's so it's uncertain. I think it I think it's not a remnant. I mean, Karathras seems to be a free agent to some extent. Um, of course, we have some interesting ruins over here that I've never really figured out. Including that infuriating place that begins with a D. Yeah. Um, and of course, we've got some El- uh, orc camps and such, which were have been situated here since the company passed through. Yeah, there's this place. Yeah, so theoretically they would have seen this place. This place, yes. Um It looks pretty bog standard. 
second age Noldoran though. Got the green accents and the gold uh, filigree and whatnot. Yeah. Well, let's come back here next time. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, Amethorn, I remember coming here for a series of frustrating quests. Um, all right. So, Arnas, your argument is that they're actually coming down in the next valley over, you think? I don't know if we can get back there from here. We have to go all the way around. Uh, actually, hang on. I'm just going to... I'm almost there. So, it, so the pass where they, does, does that road diverge, the road that we went up before? I'm trying to remember if it does. I don't think it diverges. I think there's just different natural ways to go about things. Because this is the path, right. Okay, so again, so presumably, so we were down in that broad path down there. And if this was the first road that they went up, this is the road that leads to the campsite. And we know they couldn't have gone exactly the way that we just did because that involved going further and they couldn't go any further than that. So they stopped and came back. So they would have stopped and come back down this road to some extent in any case. And then... At some point, they turned. They must have turned off the road. Right. At some point, they would bear left and south instead of continuing down the road. Yeah. So the big question is when they would have made that turn. Yeah, exactly. Not really sure. But it does head off in the general direction of... Um, the burnt tour which is where we'll be heading next uh, this is a cliff so that's not much use but yeah if they went through vaguely this way they could have come down the ridge and into the valley down this way yeah alright from here Burnt Tor is right over there, right in front of us there. Mm -hmm. I wish there had been a camp over here because that, that would have been, been nice. the, the camp of the Council on the Knees of Karathras. Yes, indeed. Mm -hmm. All right. Yeah, there's Burnt Tour straight in front of us. All right, we'll head over there next time. It's getting late. Oh, no, it already is not getting late. No getting about it. It's already late. Um, so we will head over to Burnt Tour next time, but that is...
the path of the fellowship through Karathras, we might have to take in this ruin at some point. Think about that. There's a lot of ruin in various different places. So yeah, we'll use the same milestone. Um, uh, we'll use the same milestone next time to Echad Regan and go down to the Burnt Torah. We'll circle around and come approach the Burnt Torah from this direction. Um, but um, all right, so that's where we'll go next time as we continue here in the path of the Fellowship through Eregion. Um, wolf tour. Wolf tour next time, and then maybe down to the Serranon. Who knows? Um, all right. Very good. So thanks, everybody, for joining us, and we shall continue next week. See you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>